So Maggie McKinley at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Your paper that we're talking about today, uh, Petitioning and the Making of the Administrative State, is super fascinating, and we could go in in at least 30 or 40 different directions. You sound like you've got an agenda. You sound like you're coming at this with an agenda. I don't have an agenda at all. I just think it's super exciting. I mean, it does occur to me that um, in much the way that the early part of the paper sets up, we're in this period where there, uh, there's sort of brewing among certain parts of the judiciary a desire, a kind of scrappiness for a fight. Um, with the with the basic contours of the modern administrative state. Right, now, let me just because you're jumping right in, <laughs> like this is the, like you, normally there's some, Maggie. Normally there's some nonsense on the show, and we we usually involve our guests in frivolity. But we're going to do pre roll later. Oh, but Maggie won't be here for pre roll. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. But so I did want to say one thing, one preamble. Okay, the show is mainly preambles, right, Joe? Yeah. Okay, so uh, my <laughs> my preamble is that. I saw your paper that kind of, it wasn't exactly the same week, but um, I think it was a couple weeks ago that I saw Marty Lederman's paper on um, the trials following Lincoln's assassination. Mm. Uh-huh. Which, which, I, and which, I've not seen that. Which is another 100-page law review article. So let's, let's, you know, let's just talk about what's, what's clear. This is a very long law review article. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's lots to talk about. And, 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 I, and with his paper, and again with this one, I think it totally disproves the notion that uh, a piece of scholarship has to be a certain length to be accessible and interesting because both both of your papers like just blew me away in terms of like yes this should go on for 100 pages this is the proper length for this thing yeah and no I, i've read pieces that off. were i've read pieces that were 30 pages long and i was on page 10 looking around for a pair of pliers to pull my own <laughs> teeth out i mean because it was just so horrible um whereas this one just sort of it 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 steps very lively throughout because there's a there's a real narrative connecting all of the pieces and you understand why when you're reading each piece what it's doing for the things that you're reading you know joe if you don't like my scholarship you can tell me directly (laughs) (laughs) i'm really grateful to hear that it's not too long my um my partner is a historian and when i tell him i'm writing an article that's a hundred pages long he just sort of goes blank because their articles (laughs) are somewhere between 15 to 25 pages right and so he keeps telling me that i just write very short books um (laughs) and, and i call them articles so i'm also grateful that it's not that it's easy reading um the article combines i think uh, a lot of empirical work with a a lot of theoretical work which is why i think you end up with that kind of length uh because most people do the empirics and then draw the theoretical implications later, and I just couldn't. Yeah, they're, uh, they're both interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both interesting. But to do one without the other, I think, would feel incomplete. But it does, you, you know, you do raise the question, uh, why not put this in a book? Well, this is the second, this is the second piece, right? There's a Stanford piece that, has, that seems to lay some groundwork as well? Yeah. I think essentially what you're looking at is a, a, a book project that's uh, that's coming together in chapters. They're very long chapters, so I'll have <laughs> to think about that. But my research agenda broadly um, looks at the structural empowerment of minorities uh, within democracies. And this particular project on petitioning is one that I started um, in an earlier Stanford Law Review piece, which is not as long, thank you, but equally, <laughs> probably equally as, almost as long, Um and that looks at petitioning within the Congress and in particular reform of our current lobbying system. Um, and so this piece kind of continues that with petitioning 
the administrative state and how we can now have hopefully new conversations about the constitutionality, the functionality, and some kind of normative evaluations of the administrative state once we understand petitioning. So it's all going to be the same thing and hopefully a book on petitioning soon, but it's, I'm, I'm working through my thinking chapter by chapter. Yeah, I, I say one virtue of a, of a law review article format is that I can download it for free and, and read yeah. it. And I, 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 I haven't done, I, you know, maybe some books break through and are read by a lot of people. I know some, some books do break through and read by a lot of people, right? And, but I wonder, you know, what the readership breakdown is over time. Um, yeah, because it's not just SSRN downloads. It's once a thing gets onto Westlaw and generations of people see it, maybe they're more likely to read it or at least part of it than if it's on a shelf somewhere. Um, I don't know. I think more likely than not, um, the book will be for a broader audience than simply legal scholars who really like the article format. Um, the book or the book, oh, yeah. the article. <laughs> don't, 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 don't try to say we've started something here. This I know. Is <laughs> the article engages with um, scholars uh, from American political development, so political science, um, history, as well as others. The literature that I'm engaging with on the empirical side is primarily book oriented. Um, mm. And so I think a book would be appropriate to engage in those conversations because there are book disciplines like political science and history, as well as the public that might uh, take interest in the project. And I could see historians and political scientists both being very interested as groups in a book length treatment of these materials, of the petitioning experience in our history, its role, uh, the things that are uh, that you, I think, have shown are really outgrowths of pe the petitioning tradition tran transformed into other modalities as uh, as our population grows and our technologies change. Uh, but I would think they would find it very interesting. And if books are the way they like to try to grapple with stuff, then all the more reason to to get them into the party. Sure, sure. And, you know, now, so this is the way we start our show, right? So we, 10 minutes of, of frivolity and meta. This has been more <laughs> meta than frivolity, right? And I think that's just to shake loose the listeners who really aren't going to be interested in what follows. Yeah, you, right? want, to, you want those people to turn the <laughs> thing off, right? Because they don't, they don't deserve the really good stuff. And now here's where we come in with the hook, okay? And I, I think that this is a really compelling story you tell. It really is, you know, in narrative form. I think it's fascinating through these through these documents. But... You know, so if you start this picture by saying, you know, I'm the person who thinks that like in the beginning, the union was perfect and there was a an executive which was executing and a legislature which was legislating and a judiciary that was adjudicating. Right. And and what has happened is uh, somehow through a constitutional moment around the New Deal, that whole idea was corrupted and now we have this uh, administrative menace, which is encroaching on the individual liberties of, of individual citizens and doing all three of those functions and without transparency and poorly and in every inch of our lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the narrative. And you tell this story, which makes, you know, it does a number of things. At, at, at a more meta level, it reminds you that, that human governance is always a changing process. It's never a finished thing. That, to me, that was like the theme that really landed in the end. And, and, you don't and get always that. a pragmatic but, process where people yeah. are mixing and matching the tools they have ready to hand to accomplish objectives that are right in front of them right. to deal with real yeah. issues for real people. Exactly. And, and not just people, but Congress. Uh, and I think that's important when we really start thinking about how our government has grown and changed. It really was the role of Congress to build the infrastructure 
of our national institutions, you know. And so you're watching this process happen through kind of iterations where the Congress over time tries to protect this process um, by building it out and tries to protect individuals and minorities in their in exercising their petition rights by building out that infrastructure and doing its job to build the national government. It's a, do you, if I don't know if you want to tell the story or if Joe you want to spin it up in some way but but like you know it's in the beginning you know after the uh, at least after the 1789 version of the beginning there were people who showed up in a building and they laid a bunch of papers down on a table and those <laughs> papers were petitions from individual people saying hey I've got you know uh, some some federal worker injured me or um, I need redress from this horrible accident that happened or, you know, basically petitioning the government for claims either against the government or to change something which is uh, injuring them. And it seems like the way you write it, Congress is spending an, uh, most of its time, resp- you know, on an agenda which is set by individual citizens who are pushing it to do things. Yeah. So the the petition process actually predated the founding of the, so the first Congress, um, and it predated the founding of the United States, um, including the declaration and the article. So petitioning, uh, has its roots in the lawmaking process, both in, um, ancient China, as well as, uh, in Europe. It just was part and parcel of what lawmaking was. There are some historians who see the institutionalization as of parliament as simply like an institution that was built around the petition process. So lawmaking itself within a legislature was um, pushed and shoved by petitions coming from the outside. And that's how these institutions got information um, and figured out what laws to focus on and how to craft those laws. So petitions would come in even to our Congress and our early Congress with statutory text, uh, so draft text attached um, which happens today, but today we think of it as corrupting. Right. Uh, these petitions came in to the very first Congress because that's what lawmaking was. And the very first Congress started to resolve them because this is what legislatures did. So so can I, can I interrupt to just say, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this because so, I think I saw it in the paper, but, but you've, you've sort of hearkened to it again. So the notion is that um, that legislating, you could think of legislating as an outgrowth of um, whatever government institution is there is trying to respond to people's needs. And the way it learns about people's needs is they come forth and they say, here are my needs. And so you can create an institutional mechanism for like, here's a focused group of people who hear those, hear about those needs and try to do something about those needs. Um, And uh, in the English tradition, it sounds like that's this is something, and the reason why I think this is a really important point to to sort of make sure uh, I'm grasping correctly is because it sounds like what you're saying is that the that the people who founded this country would have been very well aware um, as former British subjects that this is part of English tradition that that English people can go to the parliament and say, I've got, here are my concerns or my needs. And there's a way to try to wrestle with that. Um, and, yes, the, and so uh, that when they're here and they're trying to set something up, it's naturally going to occur to them to think, well, okay, well, one thing a legislature is going to do, of course, is it's going to get petitions from people. 
Exactly right. Even the founding of this country was founded on the colonists' belief in the petition process. So they petitioned King George twice, uh, the second petition being the Olive Branch petition. And only when King George didn't, didn't even hear that petition, either petition, which was a breakdown of the process. So he didn't give the colonists due process under the the petition system. The colonists on those grounds, see the Declaration of Independence, found themselves justified to declare an independent sovereignty from Britain. And that was because the king failed to hear those petitions. And so the petition process was at the heart of the founding of this country. Um, it uh, There was a petition process under the Articles of Confederation. And then um, you can see how the colonial and state legislatures were part and parcel or integral in the petition process, including all of the founding fathers, many of them who came from state legislatures. Uh, Madison from Virginia, which was a heavy petitioning legislature, hmm. and they carried those practices directly into the Congress, um, the very first Congress in the very first day. So before the Congress actually established the procedures for bicameralism and presentment, they had uh, they codified the process to receive and investigate, report on, and dispose of petitions. So, so one other like preliminary question I had is: it, suppose I'm an early, uh, an early American after 1789, and after the um, lower federal courts are established, how do I decide if I have a, if I have a beef with like a federal if I have some kind of problem? Uh, uh, how do I decide whether to file a petition in a district court, a federal district court, or to file it with, with the House of Representatives or the Senate? So most petitions uh, in the Congress were filed in the House, um, and that was just sort of a practice as well as it was an easier channel to get your petition in. So usually you would submit it to your own representative. But that said, you often see duplicative petition um, and adjudicative claims filed simultaneously. So Marbury v. Madison had a, a parallel petition wow. effort um, that no one's written on. We just found it in our, uh, or I found it in the database um, that we built. I, I think that's amazing. That is amazing. So one of the answers to Christian's question is just do both. It was either just do both, or if they failed in the court, sometimes you would see people just refashioning their complaints into petitions and filing them into the legislature. So it was more like a court of equity, where if they couldn't find a law to hang their claim on, they would go to the legislature and try and get it that way. I, I had no idea that was going to be your answer, because that's an answer that actually further muddies the water yeah. if you are kind of a separation of powers formalist. Yes, like the, like the Congress is a court of appeals, right? In right. a way, and or or it's like it's almost like a, a collateral attack on a judgment. Uh, it, that go ahead. I mean, they they could take it to the legislature, right. and they can more like a court of equity. You know, where you're looking for something broader than mm. the law would give you, and you make more normative arguments. You you see some kind of quasi legal arguments in the sense that they argue from precedent. Uh, laws were challenged earlier past statutes. You could challenge the constitutionality of those earlier past statutes through the petition process into Congress. Wow. So Congress would pass a law and citizens would believe that that law was unconstitutional. So they would file a petition asking the Congress to review it. And you'd even get a later Congress. So sometimes you have different people reviewing that earlier law. Well, that's, that's interesting because that, that kind of goes to the Thayer notion of like, is it possible for the Supreme Court not to review the constitutionality of statutes? And 
And one answer is like, originally, maybe there was an alternative to that, right? Asking Congress to reconsider on those grounds. And Congress, yeah. you know, it, like you say, it's like a different court, which, which maintains a different set of reasons for action. And if you don't get the right action in one institution, you go to this other institution. And one other preliminary question, though. Famously, there are stories about, about the long line of, of people who would um, be in the White House, like actually in, in the White House waiting to meet with the president. So there was also a petitioning process directly of the president. I, I, do you know if that started around the same time? I mean, this is not in your paper, so I don't, I don't know if this is something you have access to or know about. But how would I decide whether to go to the president and ask the president to intervene? And what could he, what could he do? Yeah, so the right to petition in the First Amendment, I believe, is intentionally drafted uh, to the right to petition your government and not a particular branch. Uh, and that's because there was a petition process for each of the branches. Mm. And um, this area of petitioning is so understudied historically that my work looks at Congress, and I have bit off more than I can chew, almost a book project, looking at the Congress, the congressional petition process and how that works within Congress, how that grows out into the administrative state. But you're right, there was a separate petition process for the president, which again is interesting when you're thinking about the administrative state being part of the executive or not. Right. Because it grew out of the congressional petition process and not the presidential one, but it's been understudied. So uh, from my understanding, uh, it, and that's uh, you know rough uh, secondary sources, from my understanding that um, presidents in different iterations from the founding had a petition process where um, certain uh, either time periods they would either receive petitions or receive people to uh, hear um, grievances. And so they respected the right of petition directly into the executive from the founding onward. But that's out of my area. I was just going to say, I can imagine people taking their claims to all three branches of government. Yeah. Like without a, without like an, without like a, um, maybe, maybe lawyers had a different idea, but, but ordinary people, maybe you wouldn't even consider whether which of these branches had which powers. It's just like any of these could like give me what I want in some way and I'm just going to petition all of them. And they could tell you. I mean, if you, if you, if you give it to the, I mean, if your model of what's going to happen is if I send it to all three, all three will reject me on the ground that I sent it to all three, right. that would be a deterrent. But if your model is, well, look, they'll know best which one of them is actually in the best position to help me. All I know is I have a problem right. and I need to tell somebody about it. So the more people I tell about it, the more likely I am to get some help. Um, that exactly seems right. quite common sense to me, actually. Um, yeah, you would have transfers occasionally of petitions. So you needed to petition um, an institution that had jurisdiction over your particular grievance. And it's pretty shocking how much petitioners had an awareness of that and sometimes argued for particular jurisdictional questions and standing questions within hmm. their petitions to Congress. The idea of petitioning each and every branch and having a petition right to each and every branch was something that was seen as com like commonplace. And so although my work focused on, on the Congress, you have also the president, but then also the courts. So this procedural due process, quasi-procedural due process right that I'm trying to articulate in my work around the petition clause could in some ways actually begin to replace our procedural due process doctrine within the courts. And because you petition the courts too, but no one's um, really made that argument or connection right. yet. I, I want to ask about one more category back, back in, the, uh, in the early period, um, because I don't think 
it falls within what Christian was sort of pointing to as one paradigm a group of stuff. Um, and that is in the, in the patent space. Um, it's, it's not really that you're, gr- that you're complaining that someone else has wronged you. Uh, and, and this was the first board, right? Uh, it's really yeah. that you're, you're arguing that, um, well, before the board, okay? So before the board gets set up, and people show up at okay, Congress, okay? okay? Yeah, yeah. What they're asking for is for Congress to change the, the basically market regulations, right? So give me a right that says other people can't compete against me by imitating me. Um, and the, the, the pre-congressional experience of colonial legislatures engaging in that behavior in response to petitions, um, again, it's not, it's not really that someone harmed you. Uh, or that the government did something in the past that you think they should update or or change it's you know i want the market i want the market to have a particular shape and you guys are the ones to do that so can you please do that <laughs> now in they set up the board pretty quickly because they realize wow we don't have the expertise to t- figure out if this is a legitimate invention or not but i think it is interesting that people started with them not not by going to the executive, at least, at least not the way that history is traditionally told, although our conversation here now makes me wonder, <laughs> like maybe they, maybe they did all three. Right. But that's like, like, that's like a different group of people, right? They're not trying to remedy a, a harm. They're trying to shape the, 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 the field of play. Yeah, so remedy a harm, I understand within the court context and within our modern context of litigation and adjudication and coming in with a document and asking for something, um, it was much broader then. I think uh, what you have are folks walking in with a grievance, you know, wanting a license, wanting a patent, wanting something to be regulated, wanting the steamboats to be regulated, wanting um, a certain kind of infrastructure, post office or post road, um, a port designated. Uh, And so it went well beyond your normal, I've been hurt by somebody else or I've been hurt by the government. You should help me. Uh, it even went out into uh, natural disasters and uh, depredations around war, as well as, and I think I have an example of this in the, the paper um, where I have an excerpt from the uh, petition from the free people of color from the city of Philadelphia petitioning for um, greater regulation of the international slave trade. And so you have uh, certain kinds of harms, not necessarily by the government or by another person, but it really was a broader process of individuals, minorities, citizens taking active part in the lawmaking process and trying to tell this institution how to regulate. If, if I recall, that example was one where, they, where the petition had parts of it which dealt with maybe um, the domestic trade of slaves and partly international, and they, and they carved out um, the domestic part as outside their jurisdiction? Yes. Um, it's a precursor to something called the gag rule, which was a series of resolutions uh, that was passed in the antebellum era. So the Congress, and this is, of course, you know, there are all sorts of layers of history and, and racism and other things at work, but the Congress saw the problem of slavery as within the jurisdiction of the states to regulate. Mm. And so abolitionists came in and flooded the institution from the very beginning 
uh, with petitions to abolish the slave trade, to regulate the international slave trade, and to abolish slavery itself within the states. And from the beginning, the Congress then looked at those petitions, adjudicated them, or um, it reviewed them, it reported, and it said, this is outside our jurisdiction. We can't deal with these. And then in the antebellum era, and this, the, basically when anyone hears anything about petitioning, they've heard of the gag rule. And so I always have to address it and kind of close it out because it's <laughs> some legal historians reported as the end of the petition process in Congress, which I think is my paper shows the yeah. petition process continued in earnest Absolutely. during the gag rule on yeah. different subjects and up until the 1950s. So in the antebellum era, the abolitionists showed up again and kept petitioning on it. And so Congress actually, on a procedural rule, said, hey, we've dealt with this already. We have resolved this. It's not within our jurisdiction. These are frivolous petitions, so we are going to just table them. We're not even going to look at these coming in. You can't Mm -hmm. raise this issue. And so the petitioners then shifted and petitioned for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, which, of course, is very smart because the Congress has jurisdiction over the District of Columbia. But then the Congress came back and said, well, you don't have standing petitioners because none of you actually live in the District of Columbia. And so we're going to table these two. Oh, wow. And so they tabled them and tabled them. I know, but it was a weird procedural fight. Most people report it as this space where the petition right itself broke down. Had had there been standing? I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm I'm, I'm kind of flabbergasted. You know, everything that you add that's new here, it's like, (laughs) like, because that sounds so judicial. I I wanted to read another hundred, another hundred pages of all the stuff that I'm learning right now. But um, yeah. So was this the first case in which standing was a bar? And because I was going to ask you this other question, you might answer at the same time. And that is like, if I'm a person and I wanted to submit a petition, do I get a lawyer? Because you you mentioned like there are all these jurisdictional problems that I might face, and maybe there are other ones now, and standing and otherwise. Uh, well, how it does, does that work? look like it has to have a form, like it has to have a particular, a particular form, form and content. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like a complaint. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, so, so a lawyer might help you. Yeah, many people from the founding had lawyers, which gave birth in some ways to our modern lobbying Lobbyists, profession. Yeah. Yeah, but they would have lawyers. So lawyers would really restrict themselves to the formal petition process, where there were folks who. Um, well, who were non-lawyers who would go outside that, almost a corruption of this formal process by, um, by going around it to try and use money or social ties to uh, circumvent the formal process. But they had lawyers. Many of them were pro se, and this petition process was so ubiquitous that folks just knew how to do it, like how to vote. But it was not actually the first argument for standing. And I think it, even if you look closely at the excerpt of the um, petition of the free people of color in Philadelphia, you have a petition um, that argues uh, on a class basis that these people of color from Philadelphia, these free men, were arguing on the basis of their class Mm. for regulation of the international slave trade. But they go deeply into this class-based analysis almost to argue for standing that they have standing to bring this grievance against the international slave trade in particular. So I feel like we need to step back uh, a pace and because we've, we've got in this early period, let's think of the sort of 1790 to 1810, 1820 period, right? 
Um, so one thing that your paper very powerfully educates a person about is if you thought there were these cons- these very hermetically sealed and differentiated three functions, that that's not that wasn't reality. And I just want to make sure we give you a, a chance to kind of explain that in some more detail, like how that first twenty or thirty years really shows that that's just not the right way. And it's not just a small error. It's the exact opposite of how it seems to have worked is what I learned. Right. And I, so I want to hear that. But, but, the re, but I think there's another thing that the, obviously the contemporary context in which one has a conversation about the nature of, of the separation of powers early in our history is knowing that today there is a group of people who want us to look back at that history and reach particular conclusions because they believe it was different from the way you describe it. And further, they believe that reinstating that actually turns out never to have existed um, practice is a better guarantor of people's liberty and equality. And I think your paper also gives us very good reasons to disbelieve that, right? That that not only did it not work that way, but the, the way it actually worked also helps protect people's equality and liberty, because it gives people, even people who don't have the right to vote, it gives them a very powerful tool to make sure that they get their perspective and their grievance heard by people who are in a position to do something about it. And that that's a very important personal right that those, that even non-voters had, right? Similarly, like your ability to go to court, it didn't depend on your qualifications to select representatives. It was your you know, it's right there in the First Amendment, right? You have a right to petition like you have a right to resort to adjudication, I guess. Yeah. So petitioning, it sounds, I mean, one way I read your paper is like petitioning is uh, on a par with the right to vote. It is it is a, a key way of understanding how individual persons interact with their government. And when you learn the history of how that happened, it, it happens to demonstrate that the separation of powers schoolhouse rock version that you hear from some people today is, is just could not be further from the truth. Yeah. Um, Including, including versions of that from me. I I don't want to say that there's one group of people who was wrong. Like I was totally wrong before I read this piece, even though I was not a separation of powers formalist. Yeah, that's, it's very, this is incredibly educational for, for even people who think they know a lot about the law and a lot about history. They might go, wow, this is really incredible information. So just help us understand what do you, what is that, what are the key parts of that early, you know, 1790 to to 1810, 1820 period that, that most vividly illustrates the way in which the separation of powers was not these three hermetically sealed boxes? Yeah. So I, in the paper, I draw on something called legal process theory, which is what I argue is underlying much of our public law. We're all taught how each branch functions, what it's supposed to do, and this very formal separation of powers. And in some ways, that's complete revisionist history. That's a a vision of government uh, that has never existed in this country, where the executive just executes, the legislature legislates, whatever that means, and the courts adjudicate. Uh, If you look at the founding what you had is uh, the Congress keeping a docket book where folks would submit documents like complaints, and then they would track in this docket book, a clerk in each chamber uh, would track in the docket book the disposition of this 
essentially a complaint from investigation. So they would do fact finding. They would use the federal courts or use the state courts and the federal courts for help in doing fact finding and investigation. They would reach out to the executive for reports. So they were working together collaboratively uh, to resolve petitions. So for instance, you couldn't have a, a petition for a military pension unless you knew that petitioner was actually on the rolls and had shown up and had served as part of the military. And that was in the executive branch. And so the petitions would get passed through based on reports and then come back uh, to the Congress for uh, resolution through a public or private bill. And each of those had bicameralism and presentment or a denial, which didn't require bicameralism or presentment or Occasionally, through resolution, you would have the Congress instructing the executive to do something to resolve a petition. So you had all three branches working together to resolve the petition process. Because at this point, you know, you had a national government that consisted of a handful of people, and they were desperate to try and keep it going. And so they used whatever resources they had on hand and were very, were very pragmatic about that. And the way that they conceived of process was protecting the right to petition, which was a full review of these petitions, which were public. They were read on the floor immediately and so made part of the formal record. They were tracked in a docket book. You were um, ensured a response in some form of disposition if it wasn't frivolous. And that was the view of how to protect you rather than the executive agents staying away from the Congress or the Congress staying away from the courts. And the only tussles you start to see are when the Congress tries to override final judgments of the courts or makes that process blurry. The fact that they're working together and doing things that the other branch would essentially do isn't as much of a concern as how are we going to protect this integral part of the petition process with the infrastructure that we have. Like using the tools that we have to solve the problem that we perceive. And the problem that we perceive is protecting the right to petition. Right. Um, And that is how we protect, or at least how the national government envisioned protecting individuals and minorities. So as you've said, the unenfranchised had the right to petition. Women, African-Americans, Native Americans, uh, the foreign-born, even children, used and abused the petition process to be heard in the lawmaking process. And it served as this counterpoint to the vote, which was this um, almost like a blunt mechanism to express a preference with the petition. You could show up and say, I have a grievance. I need a narrow regulation for me, or I need this regulation that you have to be modified because it's having inadvertent consequences that are burdening me in particular Um, And so when you're having especially big, broad national legislation, you can't predict how that's going to affect a a heterogeneous national polity. And so this allowed folks to show up and go, look, you're going to put my entire market out of business with this regulation because um, it affects this market differently. And so we need an exception, Um, which is now what you see through the administrative state. So. Mm -hmm. It was an essential part of what lawmaking was, that they couldn't do it without this. Um, And so to protect that was not by 
separating some formal notion of, of powers, but by preserving this mechanism of participation and representation. Because petitioning becomes a real safety valve for providing feedback. If you think about legislation as an ongoing project, a project that's always going to have to be updated as circumstances change, as you learn more about how things play out on the ground, petitioning becomes a way to get information fed right back into the system that's super, like, super vital. Exactly right. So you'd have petitioners petition for general legislation to regulate a particular market, and then you would have people from that market showing up and petitioning for amendments and modifications and exceptions immediately. And that was just this this process of lawmaking. That's what it was. And now, in some ways, we've recreated that through the lobbying process, through the administrative process, but we just fail to recognize how um, integral and uh, foundational this was to how our legislatures and how our national government worked. So I, I want to ask you something about the second phase, which you identify as from the Civil War to, I guess, 1914, the beginning of you know, World War I. And, uh, and, and maybe some of the issues that I'm going to talk about also um, started during the slavery crisis in the 30s and 40s, 1830s and 1840s. But I'm thinking about the ways that uh, people try to use the institutions they have to solve social problems. And like, so today we're seeing um, the kind of crisis over class actions in the courts and, um, and large-scale arbitration. It's people trying to figure out how to use the adjudicatory tools they have to, to, to bend a certain kind of social struggle in their direction. I think totally expectedly, the responses to that are, yes, this is, a, this is a good tool for that. Functionally, we should use this tool in this way, but it's got to change in this way in order to solve this kind of problem, and this is the kind of problem it should solve, blah, 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 blah. And then there are those who say, no, this tool, you know, maybe in a more formal register, uh, you know, this institution does this kind of thing. It is not a social policy-making instrument. It is a, you know, A versus B um, judicial resolution mechanism, right? So, so that's the kind of crisis you see. And what you write about in phase two of, this, of the history of the, uh, of the petition um, is that you start to see more people kind of uh, coordinate more effectively uh, around campaigns to submit like a whole bunch of petitions. And if you look at your graphs in here, you can see that there are spikes where the number of petitions Congress considers goes way up. And I think at least to a few of those, you attribute like mass campaigns. And so I, I was wondering as I was reading that is, is part of the story of at least the felt need to change the petition process to divert it, you know, to, um, into executive agencies or, or congressionally controlled independent agencies or, you know, through other mechanisms. New courts. Right. Is, that, is there a parallel story here about the rise of interest groups or the coordination of interest groups? Like if, if someone else was telling the history of interest groups in America, would they see kind of a, would there be a parallel story here? Yes, uh, very much so. And I think um, the, the push and pull on congressional petitioning often comes with narratives around capture and what is it called? Grass tops where you're, uh, they're fake campaigns oh, and using new communications. AstroTurf, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's an older term for it that I'm forgetting. Um, See, you're, you're the historian and I'm just, I'm just the kid who like no, watched no, commercials no. in the 80s. <laughs> um, there's, there's a really cute um, word for it that they used during the debates on the Lobbying um, Reform Act, the original act that went in um, to the 1946 act. But so I think you're you're exactly right that um, you see a shift in the late 19th century, especially around organizing and communications technologies um, in the way that 
the Congress is receiving and dealing with petitions. Um, but it was, I mean, it was seeing this before, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking that at this point, it just didn't come up with very good internal uh, procedural rules to deal with aggregate petitioning. You know, we see this in the federal courts all the time. Your right. example, of course, of class actions and structural litigation. Um, and people argue that that form of structural litigation really ought to be in the legislatures, but we don't have a mechanism for it anymore because our current lobbying system is so inadequate. Well, well do, you, do you know whether at that time, like in the 1860s, when, when, when you note that some of these spikes happen, like... Is, is part of the problem that there are kind of petition formalists in the legislature who refuse to consider these techniques that might ease their load? Um, I think it's just that they're overwhelmed in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, and any time that there's a war and the institution is diverted and then diverted into something else like Reconstruction and other things, you have the the institution not coming up with adequate mechanisms to deal with petitions internally. And that is sort of the story of the Congress up until the 20th century, where you have the petition process then um, almost rendered vestigial and then um, uh, completely supplanted by our current lobbying system in the 1950s. But the, the Congress of the late 19th century saw floods of petitions and didn't deal with them in the aggregate very well. You know, and I'm not entirely sure why, but you see this in all sorts of areas, including pensions. Um, So it wasn't just uh, interest group campaigning around particular issues. It was all over the place. It was an institution that was flooded and overwhelmed and trying to build out as fast as it could. And you see an acceleration of the building out of the administrative state over that time period and then into the early 20th century. But it was a really quite overwhelmed institution workload-wise. And and rife with corruption during that era, right? I mean, Which it, it, I think yeah. went, it went hand in glove, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Because um, to get through a process that was broken internally, um, and many people remarked on it, they took it very seriously that petitioners were not afforded proper process um, that folks could hire a lobbyist and circumvent the formal process. It would be if our, it would be like if our federal courts or state courts were so overwhelmed that you could then pay someone to go and have go golf with the judge and get your motion um, a, a hearing or get a trial set. Uh, and that's what the process started to look like in the late 19th century. Rather than actually resolving that procedurally, the Congress built out the administrative state and then eventually tried to shut down its own internal congressional petition process. W- one more backward comment before we look forward. No, two yeah. more. Oh, 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 you have one as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought you were going to go forward, so I wanted to jump no. in. Okay, yeah, you go first then, Joe. Okay. By all means. So the, uh, the Congress, I mean, as I read the history and the little part of it that I know a little bit more about, which again is uh, relates to the, the patent system in the United States, um, the Congress, it didn't take Congress getting flooded or becoming deeply corrupt in troubling ways with certain procedures for them to look to the executive. It took like a few weeks, right? right? I mean, in 1790, they start getting petitions for people who want patents, legislative patents. 
and they refer it to some committees and they realize we're just totally out of our depth and we need to turn to the executive. So yeah. let's set up that patent board. And that was 1790s technology. Yep. It's not like they're looking at nanotech or anything. It's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> right. But they, they you know, uh, they Jeez. say, yeah, this is if you want to make a merit, if you want to make a decision, that's a good decision yeah. about whether something really is a new technology. And the statute of monopolies uh, from, again, looking to the English experience, right, the fact that uh, it, it could be worth it to give someone a monopoly position if they really have come up with a new technology. Uh, the English statute of monopolies uh, from the 1600s includes those companion provisions, right? There, sh- there shall not be monopolies except in the case of new inventions. So that's a well-established principle already. And so they, they look, get these things and they're like, we can't do this. We need to pick some people who are smart and can take the time and know something about technology. So let's get the, the Secretary of State, who happens to be Jefferson, uh, the Attorney General, uh, Edmund Randolph, and I forget who the Secretary of War was because I always do, um, but let's get them together and they'll figure this out, right? And they can grant patents. They don't need to come back and ask us. They have the power to grant patents um, as an executive function. So people are like, oh my God, the administrative state, it's this monster from 1920, right? You're wrong by 130 years, right? <laughs> it's it's from 1790. Um now, the first patent board experience itself breaks down in that those three individuals say, guys, we're way too busy for this. Like, we ourselves, as the Secretary of State and War and the, and the AG, like, come on, we've got better things we to got, do. We got state stuff. We got wars to fight. Right. Yeah. right. So, so right. set up a system that is even below our pay grade. Uh, and you get a registration system from 1793 to 1836. Then you get the first really modern. Uh, a federal administrative agency in the patent office created in 1836. So once again, we're still, you know, that's a century before uh, the the uh, depression era and and afterwards creation of lots of agencies. Um, so the the and also before this period of corruption in the late 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. So. The, Looking to the executive. The corrupting uh, influence of patents goes almost 250 years in the past. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, Maggie, Christian hates patents. So we, this, is, uh, oh, no. this no. is something to know. If so, I had known he was going to go on a patent tear, I would have done. I would have, I would have stuck by my interruption. Yeah, you wouldn't have let me talk, I know. Um, but no, I just think it's a super interesting illustration of the point that, um, that, that Congress looked to the executive as a place to help figure out individual entitlement to particular forms of regulatory relief, uh, because to a patentee, a patent is regulatory relief, namely relief from imitative competition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that getting the executive to say, okay, we'll lay out some general principles in the Patent Act about what should be patentable, and then go let some agency figure it out. Like that, They'll be perfectly good at that. And it's, maybe it's a little bit adjudicative, maybe it's a little bit uh, legislative, because we could give them legislative patents. Who cares? Just get it off our desk, right? Um, that people uh, who imagine that uh, admi- the administrative state is some 1900s invention are just very poorly informed, it seems to me. Yeah, the patent board um, and the 1790 Patent Act is one that I draw on pretty heavily, especially in trying to convince originalists who see the first Congress uh, filled with founders as a great example of original constitutional meeting. Um, there's a lot to draw from there uh, around separation of powers uh, and otherwise. What and I, I think you've told the story exactly 
on how um, the Congress really just received these petitions. And in response to them, rather than private, uh, passing private bills, it passed a piece of general legislation establishing a separate process to deal with those petitions. And it did this all over the place. Um, whenever it uh, received a flood of petitions on a particular topic, it um, responded to those by setting up a separate uh, review mechanism, either using the executive or the courts to, re, um, to resolve those petitions outside of the Congress. I wonder how much we can declare that as executive um, or just the use of executive officers who were there. Because uh, again, we have a presidential petition process, which is seen as distinct. And in reality, Congress used and regulated and set up all sorts of infrastructure around it. And we don't know what it was, right? And we it takes a while to make sense of what the court of claims is. Is it a legislative, an Article I court? Is it an Article Three court? And there's a lot of revisionist history around these outgrowths to try and explain what they are and what they're doing. Um, and we've come to see them as executive agencies and part of the executive. But I'm not sure that was really the common view at the time. Well, this was going to be my question. I was going to ask you, before we kind of move forward from the, from the Gilded Age, the pre-Interstate Commerce Commission mechanisms that they set up in order to solve these kinds of problems. Like, we don't want to deal with these kinds of petitions. We have too many of these, so we set up this board. And you go through a few of them in the paper, and I can't remember examples offhand. Maybe the patent board is not the right one here. But is it the case that for each one of these that they set up, everyone thought that the president could remove the head of that ersatz board? I don't think it it came up. I mean, it was it's it's always something that was discussed later. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, it wasn't part of the it wasn't part of the original discussions in setting these things up. It was more about how do we protect the petition right by building infrastructure around it that's appropriate. It seems strange because there must have been turnover, right? Yeah, that, I, I do recall there was some early debate about whether the president could unilaterally fire a cabinet secretary. I think there were some people— A cabinet secretary. Correct, uh, which is right. an analogy, obviously, to, right. uh, and maybe a poor one to, to what you've just described. But, I, but there were, I think there were senators who believed that the fact that they participated in confirmation meant they ought to be able to participate in termination. Well, so, um, but, Maggie's— questioning about the executive nature of these things like that's kind of what i had in mind like because you could see congress saying we're getting too many of this kind of petition we need we need help and either drafting in executive officials or like they may see it as just hiring a staff to do a job for them and in that sense they're just an extension of the legislative branch right which is what the court of claims actually functioned as so the court of claims was this quasi legislative article one court that would issue advisory opinions back to the legislature, back to the Congress, or even when it could, quote, issue judgments, and that was a big question as to whether or not they could do that, but even when it could issue judgments, they would still have to return to the Congress for an appropriation to fund it. Um, And so they created these things that were almost quasi-legislative, and what they were was hard to define at the time. And it's weird, right? Because the the requirement to return for an appropriation is in essence and function like a one house veto on an executive agency's decision, right? Uh, I mean, I would have, yeah. I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, because you know, functionally, yeah, functionally, because you make Funct- a decision, yeah. you make a decision, and and if you consider it an executive decision, then the president has signed off. Let's just assume. I mean, you know, there's complexities, and then if Congress refuses to appropriate, uh, the Congress can refuse to appropriate by either yeah. side deciding not to act. That's kind of my 
the, the point. Exactly. That, yeah, and a yeah. lot of those declinations, and I think I make this argument in there about the legislative yeah, veto, do. is that petitions could be denied in the Congress without any legislative act. Um, and so declinations did not require bicameralism and presentment. Um, and there were also actually grants that were just through resolution through one chamber passing a resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, a process that was seen as independent from those legislative acts that constitutionally required bicameralism and presentment. And so um, that could have, as I argue in the paper, implications for our constitutional doctrine around the legislative veto mechanism. And spending bills have to start in the House, right? So yep. that really is a sense in which it's, it truly is a one-chamber veto. Because even if the Senate very much wants to go along, if the House says we will not begin an appropriations bill to pay for that thing, that's it. Yeah, but the other way as well. The Senate doesn't have to. Yeah, the Senate can knock it down. But most of the petitions went in through the House in part because of the, um, the revenue requirement as originating in the House. I want, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, it's, it so happens that the potential wrongness of INS against Chada has come up in another context this week for me. And I don't normally, I'm not a Chada guy. I don't normally go around talking about INS against Chada, but there was another context in which it came up. So I want to come back to it, but I want to give you the, because uh, because we don't have four hours. Um, unless, you, unless, unless you do, Maggie, I'll, I'll go all, all day if we, if we need to, oh. but uh, no, but, um, but, but I, I do want to give you the chance to tell the story maybe crisply of the, of what happened after uh, uh, that phase two that led to kind of the, ultimately the collapse of the petition process and the replacement of it or the maybe the mutation of it into the administrative state. Post-19th century, early 20th century, as we discussed, you see this massive outgrowth where Congress just goes into overdrive, building out new commissions, boards, and agencies um, to resolve petitions as well as to do other things but largely to resolve petitions. And so they see the petition process as going out into these commissions, boards, and agencies. Uh, And that eventually renders vestigial the petition process in the Congress. And so you see in 1946, the passage of two acts that I think everyone knows about, but we rarely study together, the Administrative Procedure Act and the Legislative Reorganization Act. So these two statutes together um, were passed actually a couple months apart in the summer of 1946. And as I describe in the article, they together dismantled um, the vestiges of the petition process in Congress. And they did this in part by, through the Legislative Reorganization Act, reducing the standing committees in the Congress Um, And the standing committees were the places where they were the engines of the petition process. The committee system really um, evolved out of the petition process and um, they focused on processing these petitions. If you look at the National Archives, the majority of committee records are massive boxes of petitions. Um, But the Legislative Reorganization Act reduced the standing committees um, by more than half in the Congress, and they started to match the jurisdiction of the standing committees to the jurisdiction of the agencies. Yeah, I wanted to emphasize that because that was, that was interesting to me when I read it, right? That, that there was, not only was it a, a reduction in terms of what Congress, but, but they, they tried to mirror in the legislative branch in, in Congress the kind of the high, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, 
So, so for every executive agency, there's kind of a congressional committee. In other words, it kind of moves to this oversight model, like intentionally moves to an oversight model. Explicitly an oversight model. Yeah. So in all of the reports around the Legislative Reorganization Act, they talk about how these this new committee structure simplified is going to work as a, an oversight mechanism for the agencies, boards, and commissions um, now over whom each committee has jurisdiction. And so they match it up intentionally. And then part of the Legislative Reorganization Act actually transfers explicitly more of the petitions to the federal courts and the um, executive branch. And it does this through in part by the Federal Tort Claims Act was part of the Legislative Reorganization Act, which transferred petitions for claims into the federal courts. Most of us know about that one. Um, and then they also banned certain private bills that were used to resolve particular petitions. Uh, so they really wanted to shut it down. And then you also have the Administrative Procedure Act that strengthened the petition process in um, those agencies, boards, and commissions. So it did this in part by requiring a petition process. And the drafters of the APA pointed to the petition clause as a reason for that petition right within the agencies. And so they structured a petition process. Many of the agencies had already done that. So the APA was a codification of best practices, but it required that all agencies uh, receive and respond to petitions. But it also required notice and comment, which was a practice, again, that was codified that some agencies had done um, that they started to develop to um, respond and resolve petitions in the aggregate. So they would do general calls and have hearings or mass petitions, and then um, they would use those to regulate. And so they required that in the APA. And then following those two acts in 1946, the petition process in Congress dropped dramatically. So basically to near zero levels adjusted for population, it's lower than at the founding. And uh, it stayed there uh, to the present day. Because it's been rechanneled into this other set of institutions. In part, it's been rechanneled into these other sets of institutions. And in part, the petition process in Congress, and this is my earlier article, um, lobbying in the petition clause, it's been supplanted by our current unregulated gray market lobbying system. Hmm. Yeah, because the, the people who uh, want to address Congress, like the reason they were petitioning was because they wanted Congress in particular to get involved. Um, they're not going to be happy about having to go to an agency necessarily, right? Because it might be like, no, that's not, they're not going to be able to give us the things we want and need. So those people are going to continue to want to approach Congress because that's really what they were trying to get in the old regime. You also have in Congress a neutral channel. So you can think of the administrative state as specialized buckets to put petitions in. Mm -hmm. So you have like a social security bucket or an environmental regulation bucket. But to petition for new rights and new laws and new regulations or even modifications of the current structure of commissions, boards and agencies, you need a neutral platform to take those petitions. You need that basically a court of equity, a legislature of equity where you can walk in with a general grievance within their jurisdiction and they will hear it and be able to redress what you're talking about. And our current administrative state, although it encompasses a broad range of areas on which petitioners have petitioned, it was about 150 years of that. It's still and now 200 plus, but 
it doesn't have that general platform to help the whole system move. You have to go to Congress for that. So would we have been, would it have been better, do you think, in retrospect for Congress in 1946 to have included in the, in the um, Reorganization Act to, to create a general petition process that remains in Congress um, and that part of your petition has to spell out at, at the outset, like page one, you have to explain why there isn't some more appropriate other place for you to go instead. That would be brilliant. It would be brilliant. And it would be so much better than the current unregulated system that we have. You made Joe smile, but for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which very which very few people have done lately. So I do appreciate it. <laughs> There isn't as much to smile about these days, but we take uh, those true. pleasures where we can. Absolutely, um, because because as you say, you know, the, if if you if you know functionally that there are going to be some things that again other people just can't provide, so you know people right. are going to keep showing up. Uh, but was what what was so good about the old regime was it had this public character where people are reading into the record the petition, it's getting referred to a committee. So there's sort of transparency values. Yeah, but were were there not also gray market lobbyists then? Like there were people who petitioned, but like if you were really in the know, you had, I don't know, you had uh, scotch with the Speaker of the House. Oh, I would imagine so. But then that that becomes, it becomes easier for people to differentiate that bad behavior from good behavior because the good channel is so obvious and available to everybody. Like, exactly. Why did you have to go have scotch with with the guy? With our courts. Like, you know, if you, we have our courts, the reason why we are able to have ethics rules and all of our practices around our judges is because we have a formal way of engaging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can't say what's corruption in the Congress and we can't say what's good lobbying or what's good petitioning and bad lobbying because we don't have a formal process anymore there. Because responsiveness is defined by communications with constituents in, in Congress, right? And, the, and if there's no formalized and routinized way to do that, then, you know, these, yeah, it all gets mucked up. That's very interesting. So I wanted to move to the normative point, um, and, and this is kind of a bridge to it, that, you know, if it, the effect of, of, of um, siphoning off all of the congressional petitioning process and putting it out into agencies, uh, independent and otherwise, uh, is is to um, uh, you, you might have a concern that that legitimacy no longer kind of grounds out into direct elect- electoral ca- accountability, right? And so if you have a theory that to, to give a uh, to give an agent um, decision making power over some significant policy or something that affects individual rights, like you need that to ground out in d- preferably directly into um, into electoral accountability, you might have a problem with this, right? Exactly. Um, th- this is like Scalia's theory of of uh, textualism, right? It, it eventually, it, you know, you you push hard enough on that, and you realize, and he's very upfront about it. It grounds out into like trying to um, surface uh, the um, directly accountable legislators, right, and and to make transparent as as possible, you know, what their decisions are, so that you can vote the bums out. And if you can't vote the bums out, then the then there's a legitimacy crisis. But but you advance this participatory model, which is like yeah. even in Congress, like the, whether those decisions were virtuous or consistent with um, with democracy or, or best governance, it was never it was never just about electoral accountability. And in fact, it was it was some problems. I mean, you, you point out like some criticisms they had. I forget which dates they were and which phase they were in, but where they would write, this is basically no way to run a government. Right. <laughs> uh, the petitions are piling up. They're not getting enough attention and there's no legitimacy here despite the fact that we're electorally accountable, right? So there were other virtues that were being submerged underneath electoral accountability, and maybe the administrative state gets rid of electoral accountability, at least directly, 
but surface yeah. is other important values. So we have, I think, um, largely because political scientists do this, um, we've sort of fetishized the vote as the only mechanism of representation and accountability in our constitutional democracy. And we've forgotten um, about what was seen as an intrinsic and integral and foundational um, mechanism of participation and accountability, which was the petition process. And that was more broadly used, so you didn't have to be enfranchised to use the petition process. So it was more popular, more um, open, um, more inclusive, and uh, it held institutions more accountable because it was in between elections that constituents could show up. Uh, and, and it was in some ways um, almost more accountable than the elite mechanism or majoritarian mechanism of the vote because you had individuals and minorities uh, who had a grievance who may have been regulated by a legislature and the legislators had to look those people in the face and see them on, uh, on equal footing and with equal dignity to everyone else and to hear their particular circumstances and their particular normative arguments. So think Hannah Arendt or Levinas, like this was having to confront the other and to see them as human and to see them as worthwhile. And so this was uh, seen as an equivalent mechanism of the franchise, then the franchise or to the franchise. And it's just one that you know, now we talk about lobbying. I think there was most recently that indivisible group put out this massive booklet on how to make your legislature listen to you. So we are trying in so many ways to keep this practice going, but we've forgotten the name of it and we've forgotten its historical roots and we've forgotten the values and the function to this form of participation, which is allowing individuals and minorities to participate in the making of laws that govern them, which is integral to liberty just as much as being left alone. Um, and I make that argument in the paper that this is doing something else and it's equally as important and we are trying in some ways to keep it going and recapture it through all these institutions, but we're not recognizing it and naming it. And so part of my project is really trying to name that practice and, and make it visible again. If you could do one or two things within the existing administrative state to kind of, uh, th that would enhance this participatory function. Like right, right now there is the ability to petition for a rule. There is um, a notice and comment rulemaking. And, and Joe and I have talked about this before. I forget if it was in the context of one of these classes or not. And lots of people have written about it, right? That there's something like, there's something more empowering about being able to participate in notice and comment than to cast one vote that you know will make no difference in the mm -hmm. election of your senator in a way, right? So there's, uh, you know, there are values to trade off and you, 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 um, you talk about some of these things. So, but how would you enhance um, participation? Like, is there something we could change within the administrative state that would bring back some of the virtues of, of congressional petitioning at its best? Yeah, so I think Congress, I have a whole paper on that, and we have so much work to do to create a formal process that meets the values of our petition, right? right? And so I have that to the side. But with respect to the administrative state, I one of the big pushbacks I got with response to this paper um, was uh, the administrative state doesn't do all these wonderful, beautiful, participatory things. Like right. all of the empirical studies show that it's technocratic, that people don't have access, they don't take petitions seriously, they don't take notice and comments seriously. And so when we talk about the administrative state uh, and when the administrative state shapes its own policies and its own internal workings, it's so much more 
concerned about, um, you know, cost benefit analysis and technocratic governance and uh, accountability to the electoral process. And it's missing this participatory aspect where it actually takes uh, engagement with citizens in a formal way seriously uh, through the petition process where they actually get processed through notice and comment where people actually get their comments read and heard and accounted for, where we take the procedures more seriously within these institutions. And I think you see this happening over time as the courts have stepped in more and more. They've kind of cortified in some ways um, many agencies, but it hasn't recognized this particular value of a quasi-procedural due process right. And I think that the petition clause, um, Article 1, our understanding of petitioning could help us see what the administrative state ought to be doing functionally so we can start to rebuild it and reform it towards those ends. I had a conversation recently with Philip Hamburger over his criticisms of the administrative state. And he is um, in some ways moved from like a broader historical criticism of the administrative state out of like British history and moved into this argument that because the current administrative state isn't protecting our due process rights, that it is unconstitutional because of that. It was funny because I looked at him and I said, well, we might agree. We should just reform it. We should make it better. We right. should aim to really get a space where people can participate and be heard and understand what that the infrastructure is doing that rather than fighting over its very existence. And he, of course, said, no, 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 we need to abolish it. But um, for a moment, we had like consensus. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that in, in, in connection with which of these values is getting vindicated by which of these practices and, and comparing voting and petitioning, I mean, even now, uh, the Constitution doesn't give, uh, in sort of unalloyed terms, a, a right to vote. It talks about not limiting it in certain on certain grounds, on grounds of race, on grounds of age, on you know, on grounds of sex. But but the sort of the the universal right to do something, um, it gives us the right to petition. It doesn't give us the right to vote. It's it's not written that way. Uh, yeah. So that's it's an interesting further testament to the importance of petitioning in in a conception of uh, keeping government accountable to the governed and uh, and in and in keeping it accountable to all of the governed, uh, treating all of the government as being on an equal footing with one another. Exactly. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing that you do have an affirmative right to petition recognized in the Constitution, um, as opposed to the right to vote, which we all in some ways kind of take for granted because all of the infrastructure is constitutionalized in particular ways. But the fact that we kept that practice going is largely where we're deriving this idea that voting is so integral to our constitutional framework. Um, whereas petitioning codified and integral through practice, but um, because it's been lost and transformed, um, it's, it's, it's largely just forgotten as a thing that we're doing, but it still exists. Um, and I, I start my paper with a quote from Joseph's story about uh, a 19th century view of the right to petition, which he describes as it would seem unnecessary to be expressly provided for in a Republican government because it results from the very nature of its structure and institutions. It's impossible that it could be practically denied until the spirit of liberty had wholly disappeared and the people had become so servile and debased as to be unfit to exercise any of the privileges of free men. So this was a foundational part of our Republican form of government, and uh, it has 
continue to pop up all over the place in all sorts of doctrines and all sorts of areas. Um, and I argue in infrastructures of government, but I think it's just it's time that we recognize it, call it for what it is, and start to understand its function within our constitutional framework. I, I think what was so moving to me is that, like, so I, I'm not as uh, I, I'm not as immediately attracted to the argument that Joe made about uh, it, about its appearance in the Constitution and the non-appearance of the right to vote, um, because you know I, I just don't think the like the right not to quarter soldiers is necessarily more important than the right to vote or the right to certainly the right to bear arms. But but it does say something, and and, and I, I guess what changed to me when I read the piece. Uh, and, and how could it not? You marshal all kinds of great evidence is that, you know, for me, the right to petition had been this thing, which is, yeah, it's just an element of speech. It's like an elaboration of the right to free speech. Right. And 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 so it's just kind of like a like petitiony kind of speech. And so yeah, if I know the right to speech and then I basically know the right to petition. Right. And but you describe this amazing historical structural role that makes you reconceive, you know, not like I said at the beginning, like, first of all, you, you know, you, you see. Um, uh, our political history is not something that had a beginning point and an end point, right? Uh, you know, and is, is otherwise like static at both ends of that, but instead this process of change uh, where there was this important structural, you know, this important structural fact that people were, were legislative agenda setters, right? Yeah. A- and that's, uh, that's now gone, but we have a different kind of mechanism. I just, I just thought about all these things quite differently after reading it. But and and I would say, in uh, you know, I take your point, Christian. But but the about the text of, and you know what uh, how important that might be. Uh, I, I can simply make the point that um, if you think everything super important is going to be in there, and things that are trivial aren't going to be, this is an instance where that would flip your sense of what you might see there, right? Well, surely the right to vote will be there and petitioning, eh, um, but it turns out to be the reverse, which is at the very least an indication that you have more to learn about your own history if you, if you, see, if you hear that and you think, well, that's surprising. Um, one, one last thing about the... Well, no, I, would say, I would say this. I mean, I mean there are, you know, there are, there are places in the Constitution that set out uh, elections, right, um, and rules for elections, which kind of presume a right to vote. So it's it's mere absence to me. It doesn't necessarily suggest a lack of centrality. I mean, there's no right to breathe in the Constitution. Well, they right? they, they, <laughs> they they assume that there will be voting. Yes, um, but they the Constitution doesn't purport to uh, to say anything uh, critically important, at least in the original document, about uh, the federal role in defining the, the contours of that right. Right, and right. and it does say in the First Amendment a something very important about a federal insistence on the existence of a particular right, a right um, to petition in the context of the federal government. And yeah, I, I mean, th- so yeah, okay, right, you're yeah, just yeah, you're yeah. just repeating my point, right? Which is that it's there. I'm not trying to say anything more dramatic than that it is there, and that that should that you could take that as a single. Yeah, but you're saying a, it's, it's thereness is important. It is if you think that um, it's a trivial thing that that. Um, uh, you know, we can just forget about, right? It will, that the fact that it's there suggests it wasn't viewed as trivial by the people who placed it there. So there's something more to learn um, and that I think its presence invites. Well, that I can agree with. But that is all I was saying, I think. Yeah. Can, can we find something yeah. else to fight about then? Um, well, if you, let me, if you let me make another point I was trying to make two or three times, I um, oh, didn't boy. get a chance to. Oh, my God. Um, it, so um, I, I think it's, I think, uh, we have a colleague named Sonia West, and she's um, done some very interesting work on 
the 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 press right as like an affirmative right that has a content and substance that people might not appreciate. So far, I'm in total agreement. Yes. Yeah, and so I it's funny because I wonder whether or not there might be some interesting sort of project uh, in the future here where where you know the role of the press in protecting the 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 vitality and substance of the petitioning right that. Part of what makes petitioning effective is not only that it is transparent in the in being handled by the governmental actors, but it is also the sort of thing that the press has to have the ability to report about. Like, here's how our petitions are getting handled. It, we, we filed them. Here's what they're doing with them. Here's how they're ignoring them. Here's how they're acting in accordance with them. So there's sort of like there's press about petitioning that could be an interesting and and as, by way of background, our very first episode was was about Son, was with Sonia West about this issue where we, that was where we explored this idea that maybe the establishment clause is to the free exercise clause as the press clause is to the speech clause, right? That they serve similar functions. And I think she since wrote a paper about that too, right? Yeah. yeah so was that our first episode with a guest? That was our first one with a guest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. I, ju- I just think it's fa- there's there's some fun maybe free speech stuff. Maybe you've already been thinking about that. I don't know. I'm a huge fan of um, Sonia West's work, uh, and she's a friend as well. So I'm um, flattered that you would find a connection between our projects because I, I think that hers is is so important. Um, and I I think that the seeing the importance of having a petition right and the petition process as a right, so something that's visible to the press on which the press can report if the government is satisfying that right, that's something that we had um, historically. So the petition process, especially in Congress, was this public process that was presumed to be public in part so you could have folks reporting on it and holding the government accountable by having that visibility. And now, especially in the context of our Congress, we have a current lobbying system, which people argue is equivalent to a petition process and is actually shielded from reform by the petition right, which I completely disagree with. Mm. Um, but they argue that that completely opaque process that's unequal, informal, totally gray market economy is the same or should be um, protected by our petition right. And I think that if you see the publicity as important um, you start to understand why that current lobbying system is completely inadequate uh, and doesn't get anywhere close to the petition right in Congress. And that's in part because now our press has little to no idea what's going on in the lawmaking process, and they have to practice access journalism uh, within D.C. where they trade, um, you know, being kind to someone to get in the door and get information. They have to trade it in order to understand what's going on in our legislatures. And that, I think, is profoundly unfortunate. There's so much in this paper that we haven't talked about, including um, a criticism of Chada and the One House veto, and um, which, I, which I mentioned came up this week in the context of the proposed new AUMF, the new authorization for the use of military force, mm. where it's like, oh, wow, like this is my idea. Like, I think the one house veto would be a solution because, you know, they, they're trying to pass a new AUMF that will give to the president the power to, like, add new groups to war against. Right. Because the whole problem is, like, there's an authorization against the uh, 9-11, basically conspirators, all the people involved in that. Right. There's one for Iraq. And then they've been stretched to reach ISIS and and other organizations. and you know, there's no argument that they reach Assad. Um, and so there's some 
idea, we need to redo this. We need to be clear about who the targets are. But we also need a mechanism where, you know, as new bad guys pop up, the president can go after them. And they're trying to make a create some kind of mechanism where it goes back to Congress and they have 60 days to do something. And, you know, it can pass if it, if they disapprove, it has to pass both houses and be signed by the president. So the president can veto it. That's the whole problem. Right. If, they, mm, if the right. president wants to add uh, a new group and Congress says, yeah, we don't we, we don't like that. The president just vetoes. Uh, uh, the, the bill, the disapproval bill, and then and now he sort of laundered the addition of the new group through Congress, right? And, but a, but a one house veto would solve the problem and w- and would kind of preserve Congress's war making power. But and, we but it's unavailable because of Chada. And another thing we haven't talked hmm. about is the sort of brilliant uh, discussion of the huge blind spot in the Hart and Sachs legal process materials about petitioning, right? And about that as a as a foundational. Um, uh, structure and and practice for the administrative state, um, and, and a blind, a, a, kind of an extension of a blind spot there about how legislation is really made. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. So just so I mean, you know, <laughs> people who didn't turn us off hours ago to go read the paper, knowing how awesome <laughs> it would be, are ju- are ju- have made a big mistake because they should be reading this paper right now. And we haven't even talked about footnote four fourteen. Oh my god. Oh yeah. See, this is the, the you know if you write a paper that cites Erie. And talks about patents. Like Joe's going to email you and get you on the show. That's no, just what's going to happen. Say, but look, I will say in my defense, I didn't know either of those things <laughs> when I invited her. I had seen the first few pages of it, and I was like, "Oh, I'm in. This is going to be awesome." Yeah, like yeah, I could yeah. tell. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but then, to fi- and then you get to footnote four fourteen, and it's just like I'm shook. Which is which is quite amazing because if you told me, "Oh, just wait. You 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 know you, you wait till you get to footnote four fourteen. I'm like. Did you say four hundred and fourteen? <laughs> footnote four hundred and fourteen. Like I, there is no way. There is no. But but it is totally merited. Like this is a paper which is like you know this is how long it should be. It covers what it should. And like as we've been talking, I'm like, oh, there could have been fifty more pages here, and I would have read them eagerly. Yeah. So and, and then you turn the page, and there's this sort of galaxy-sized diamond shining oh at you. It's amazing. Wow. Now that that might be a little bit of hi- that might be a little bit of hyperbole. No, not for me. Not not for me. <laughs> I mean to to, to notice. I mean, this is you're talking to the person who in our last episode described the fact that April 25th is Happy Caroline Erie Day. And right. footnote 414 describes that it's also Happy Morgan Day, which I didn't yes. know. Mm. And that just about knocked me out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. Oh my gosh! It's, so before we go, is there anything, Maggie, that like, if people are gonna, if people don't read the paper, and they just listen to this podcast, they're you know, fools. God help them, whatever. But but <laughs> if, if if they did that, like, what is the one thing that you want to say that they that, that maybe we haven't covered? If there is anything, maybe we've covered everything as as you would. But is there is there one other message in the paper that you would want to make sure people know about? It's not an additional message. It's sort of a meta message of my larger project, which is just that. Petitioning is itself important. We need to name it and understand it. We really need to think about lobbying. We need to think about the administrative state. And most importantly, think about um, minority participation and empowerment and how not only rights-based frameworks, but also structural frameworks through the petition process were set up to represent individuals and minorities as well. So part of our um, uh, structure and rights false dichotomy begins to fall apart when we look at the petition process. And I, I think we can start to see that um, more broadly within public law. So there are lessons here for our democracy, and then there are lessons even more broadly for our public law scholars. Awesome. Cool. That was, 
actually, I, as I was turning through the paper to see, you know, if I had any other notes that, um, uh, cause I did write down a couple notes this time cause I couldn't help it. I wanted to remember. And, uh, and I, I also realized this is the other thing we're not going to get to that we're not going to get to, but like you're the second person this week who has slagged Matthews against Eldridge. Um, <laughs> It's an it's a low hanging fruit. <laughs> I guess I've got some personal history, so um, but that we'll have to wait for another time. We'll have yes. to wait for another time. Um, but I th- hope so. Thank you so much for for having me on. Thanks for agreeing to come on. And, it's terrific. And, yeah, this is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you again. All right, I'm gonna hit stop.